So if you would, please grab a Bible. We're going to be in the book of John, John chapter 3, starting in verse 16. And as you get there, um, I want to bring your attention to a, a potentially a hymn that you guys are familiar with, I don't know, uh, by Frederick M. Lehman. He was a German Christian who immigrated to America, oh man, just about a, over a century ago. And he wrote a hymn called The Love of God. You ever heard this song? It's amazing. I want to give you the first verse of this song. It was written in 1917. It says, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. And this morning we're opening up, kind of as Linda said, to a passage with a verse that is probably the most well-known verse than just about any other in the Bible. You may not see any other Bible verse in public these days, but you'll see this one. You'll see guys in the end zone with a huge billboard with this on. Written on bumper stickers, signed on baseballs, on t-shirts, on socks. Written on the eye black of Tim Tebow when he was in football. Well, here's my question then. Here's the question that we all should ask about that. If that's so prevalent, if this is so readily accessible, why don't people, more people respond to John 3.16 like Frederick Lehman did? Why, why do we seem so slow to respond that way? What do we really believe? What do we really trust about the love of God? Well, I'll tell you that though John 3.16 is, I think rightly, he was called by the 16th century reformer Martin Luther, the gospel in miniature. One of the reasons that we and so many others don't rightly understand and believe this is because we oftentimes think that God's love is just like ours, which sometimes goes, sometimes comes. And we oftentimes think that one verse is just enough to cover the entirety of what God has for us. Well, that's not the case. That's why he gave us a book, and that's why there are paragraphs in this book. So that's why we're not going to study just one verse this morning. We need to see where this verse is couched. That helps us understand why, it's ma- why it matters. Timothy, the Apostle Paul told his disciple Timothy that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So let's learn to believe the love of God this morning. Would you please stand as we read God's Word this morning? John chapter 3 beginning in verse 16 all the way through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You have a seat. This morning, as we look at this passage, we need to believe and see that God's gift of his Son is love worth believing. Now I mentioned... We read this in paragraphs. This verse is couched. So let's do a quick recap of last week. Last week we saw a guy named Nicodemus approach Jesus. And Jesus totally blew him away and blew his categories away by saying that new spiritual birth was the requirement for seeing and entering the kingdom of God, of seeing reality as it really is. Jesus then tells Nicodemus that whoever believes the testimony of Jesus the one who descended from heaven, that person has eternal life. But it's not just that Jesus is from heaven. It's that Jesus fulfills an ancient script, ancient picture of the gospel from Israelite history that, as it says in um, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So what does this mean? This meant that the man sent from heaven was to be crucified on a cross, a pole, a lift, and lifted up for all to see him die. And we know, because we're on the other side of that historical event, that Jesus did die, but he rose again. But why? Why? Have you thought about this? Why did the Son of Man have to die? Why is believing in a crucified Savior, even though he's now the, alive, the condition for eternal life? I mean, God could have done it a whole bunch of other ways. Why that one? Why not just believe God without the bloody mess of the cross? And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So with that backdrop, we can now go into John 3.16 as the first word of the verse is for. What, the ver what is this for? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Why did Jesus have to die? Because God's love is costly. That's our first point. God's love is costly. He's the gift. He's the purchase. He's the redemption of whoever believes in him. He's God the Father's best expression of love that he has for the world he created and mankind made in his image. You know, many of you have someone you love in your lives. If you don't, I hope you get one. <laughs> but 
But if you were to ask that person how they knew you love them, how would they answer? Would they say, well, he or she told me that they loved me, so it must be true. In a perfect world, that would be enough. But sadly, we don't live in a perfect world yet. And many broken relationships have started and ended with those words. You know, if they knew that you really loved them, they would probably tell you of a time when you demonstrated that love for them. Whether you serve them, you got a, a, a gift, or a, a really big affirmation and encouragement. Well, that picture breaks down a little bit with God, because who is God? Well, among many things, he is the one who speaks and worlds are created. He's the one who, who breathes and fills the, lung, fills the lungs of dust and humanity is made. So when he says, I love you, that ought to be enough. But among the many attributes of which God is, he is love. As First John says, as this whole book testifies. And because he is love, the purest, highest, most objective love that there is, he is not at all content with a single verbal comment and a single verbal expression of just saying, I love you. He goes to the most costly length of sending his own self-expression, the Logos, the Word incarnate, Jesus Christ in the flesh, as a gift to die. Why? Because he loves. This verse says nothing about the worthiness of the world. But it says Tons about the worthiness of the one who loves. You know, God told the nation of Israel and his, his chosen people long before he sent Jesus Christ. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 8, he said, It was not because you, the nation, were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God loves and keeps his promises out of his great love, and it's costly for him. This is not cheap love. God sends his son because he loves, and he sends his son, not just as the son, but as the Christ. so that he can show he loves by keeping his promises. So why does he keep his promises by sending his son? Is this one on? All right. Okay, let's try this again. Why does, he keep, why does God keep his promises by sending his son? That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God demonstrates his love in this costly way to show that he is to be what? Believed. He is to be trusted. He is to be known as he is. 
And it's in knowing him as he is, that's exactly where we felt at the beginning. If you remember, hopefully you do, or if this is not, this is your first time. Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning of the book, just a couple chapters removed, when the serpent, the devil, entered the garden, he spoke to Eve, Adam being with her. Do you remember what he said? Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Did God really say? Do you know what that question is? It's actually a statement. It's a lie. A statement that says God really isn't who he says he is. That he hasn't done what he says he's done. And it's a lie that's whispered into our ears about our creator. You can't trust him. He doesn't really love you. I watched a documentary the other day where one of those interviewed said that they got a letter from a woman who had been abused and lied to a good chunk of her life. And she said one of the struggles she had with believing God was that she never knew or never could tell where she stood with God. But she said, with Satan, I always knew where I stood. And the person being interviewed said that for that woman, Satan, the voice whom she had believed, he was the more certain figure in her life than God. The more consistent figure in her life. And I wonder how many of us are like that today. Where we think that God flip-flops. Where we think that God speaks out of both sides of his mouth. Why do we believe that? Because we were fed a lie about God and we ate it. We embraced that lie and we believed it. We believed that God was holding out on us. We believed that if God couldn't trust, couldn't be trusted, we had to be the ones to control our destiny because we believed the other, another lie that the serpent said a few verses later in Genesis 3. For God knows that when you eat of it, the tree they weren't supposed to eat of its fruit, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you know what that's called in John 3.16? It's called perishing. Why would Jesus need to die to show God's love? Why would sacrifice be necessary? Why would, as Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3.7, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God? We need to be born again because apart from believing Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, we're perishing. We're eating lie after lie after lie, day by day. And perishing is not, we're not just going to physically die. Well, that's coming. Ecclesiastes says, it's appointed for a man once to die and then face judgment. Let's see, what, what is perishing contrasted with here? Should not perish, but have eternal life. It means that perishing is an eternal deal. If we're found to be without God, that's eternal death. So I say this because we need a dramatic reformation of our understanding of the stakes for God's costly love. Our biggest problem is not coronavirus. 
Our biggest problem is not children starving. It's not murder. It's not abuse. It's not the worst thing that can happen to us on the planet. It's not crops failing. It's not losing our job. It's not losing our family. Our biggest problem is that our sin totally separates us from God and the eternal life that he has in himself. That he's wanted us and he designed us to have. And we are totally unworthy to be saved. So who would give the greatest of gifts to someone who didn't trust the giver? And who not only didn't trust him, but actively tried to work against him, even though that giver had done absolutely nothing wrong to deserve such a treatment. Romans 5 says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one may would dare even to die. Who would give the greatest of gifts? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God's love is costly. But even though God's love is costly and he has shown a demonstration the most profound demonstration of his life, people still don't believe it. Because there's some other, there's some, there, again, there are lies that we need to unpack and dismantle. Some people get, frankly, irritated with people parading around John 3.16 because they say, I know what Christianity really is. It's about guilt and condemnation. And it's about shaming people into believing Jesus. Who just wants you to behave. God only loves you when you behave. Maybe you've said that. Maybe you've lived like that. But how does God answer that question? How does God answer that statement? John 3.16 is good, but again, it's not the whole Bible. So now, let's look at verse, starting in verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Did you hear that? God's condemnation is not the focus. It's not his focus. Salvation is his focus. His love displayed in sending his son is that he recognizes our state and he wants to get us out. Now one thing I have to, have to say, and we have to get clear right, right away, is that we're not going to be looking at the fullness of God's love this morning. We can't. 
in an hour, hour and a half that this service lasts, we can't possibly look at the full extent of God's love. And here, even in this passage, we're not looking at the totality of God's love. And it's a dangerous thing if we read this as the sum total of God's love. Because there are other passages in Scripture that says God hates sinners. What do we do with those? And it literally says that. What do we do with those? And there are also Christians who, hearing those passages, come to this one, and actually they struggle. And maybe you do too. They struggle to tell people who are in sin, both the Christian who is struggling with sin and the unbeliever who is still lost in their sin and loves it. Some Christians actually struggle to tell people that God loves them because of those other passages in Scripture. And some people make this verse and this passage They try to disconnect it from other attributes of God. They try to make this as absolute. That God's love for the world is the only way God loves. And that's not true. We have to read the whole book. And this idea will come up later in John and we will explore it further. The varying ways God loves. But here, it is a reaching out to a world that desperately needs him. So if God's focus is not condemnation, one of the things we have to start with is our focus. Our focus is often condemnation. Our focus... Again, it's like two pictures of God. One is this nice, kind grandfather who wouldn't hurt us, wouldn't hurt a fly, and then there's this, and then there's this God who's just angry all the time, who's just going to beat you down the second you try to rise up. Now that's not. That's not. Neither of those pictures is accurate. But if you're in this side where you can't do enough right. And you think that you're, it is, God is a condemning God. And that when Jesus shows up, you're just like, it's even worse. That's not what this word says. That says, for God did not send his, word, his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, we tend to focus on condemnation. And especially as Christians, when we do something wrong, you know how easy it is to slip into the slip on that slope that says, I'm not good enough. I can't do it. I can't and stay there and think that, well, God's already saved you, so why did you run from him? Well, and then you think that the only way you... The only way you can help yourself 
is by running further. Is anybody else, or is that just me? Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, he did not send his son into the world in order to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, and whoever believes in him is not condemned. But what gets in the way of our belief is sometimes thinking that we're not condemned. People sometimes don't think they really need Jesus. I mean, look how awesome I am. I do things okay. Even on my worst day, I'm better than so-and-so. See, the interesting thing is that for con- in, terms of, in terms of us getting this, we have to understand what he says here, is that but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Jesus doesn't have Jesus is not necessary to show us that we're condemned. We've shown that every day of our lives that we have lived in rebellion against God. Jesus doesn't need to help us out um, with displaying our need for rescue. No, he comes to be believed. He comes to show that there's another way than the self-salvation we try to manufacture for ourselves. Because that's God's focus. His, God, His focus is salvation. I mean, it's clear that the world might be saved through him. We can't read that with real lenses to say that everybody believes. We can't. It would be great. But that was God's intent. That people would believe not be condemned. They're already condemned. And that's, that's great news for us as Christians. We don't walk around proclaiming the good news as condemnation. Aside from this verse, for God so loved the world, do you know what the other most popular verse in the world is? Judge not. Again, ripped right out of context. With this message... We're giving people hope, not judgment. They're already judged. They're already condemned. We were all condemned. Paul says we were dead in the trespasses of our sins. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he is not what? He's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We were condemned already, and then Jesus shows up. God's demonstration of his love, the most visible way he could manifest it. And he says, if you reject that, you're without hope. But if you receive that, as he says in John chapter 1, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God.
And so in believing him, we are saved from condemnation. There is condemnation, but that's not God's focus. That's not God's aim. And I wonder how many of us have ever really thought about that, that God doesn't hold condemnation and salvation right on the same plane. He doesn't hold them hand in hand as if they weighed the same. No, for him, salvation is so much more. And you want to know how I know? And how we can know? is because he sent his only son. He gave his only son. He didn't give anything for condemnation. He gave God incarnate for salvation. So we've touched on it only briefly thus far. That we have a lot of wonder and amazement that God has loved to take away things from us. Take away perishing. Take away condemnation. God's gift of his son is love worth believing, but there is a whole other side of this coin that we haven't talked about yet. If God giving his son for salvation is so much more, we have to remember that the passage starts that way. For God gave, not God took away. He does take away our sins. He does take away our condemnation. He snatches us from perishing. But to what? To just take it away and then we're back to the same old grind? We must grasp with all that we are, individually and corporately, church, that if God's love is costly and if God's focus is not primarily condemnation of the unbeliever, then he is after something which John records at the end of, these, end of his letter. Again, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, by trusting and embracing his one and only Son, you may have what? Life in his name. God's salvation is eternal transformation. Let's look. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe, or whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Eternal life. What do you think of when you hear that term, eternal life? I think it's a slow. It's slowly starting to diminish, but I don't think I don't think many people, but maybe you do, think of sitting on a cloud wearing a diaper with a harp. You're a bit fatter, but at least you got baby soft skin. That's not God's idea of eternal life. 
at all. Because for us, some of us, that sounds like hell. I can't play a musical instrument. I don't want to be a baby. What is eternal life? John records that Jesus prayed in the garden. He said, this is eternal life. That they know you. He's talking to his father. The one true God in Jesus Christ. Whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God. Eternal life is believing in the name of the only Son of only Son of God, Jesus Christ. Eternal life, if that's the case, which it is in Scripture, that means if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God today, do you know what you're living today? You're living in the power of eternal life today. You don't have to wait till your body goes in the ground. That puts a whole new perspective on eternal life, doesn't it? Because it's not conditioned on circumstance. We so often in the church say, well, I just can't, in some ways, I just can't wait till I'm out of here. Because there's a lot of brokenness. I can't wait till I'm out of here. And I can't wait to get away from this muck, get away from this sin. Those are good things. But those should never be the drivers of how we live in the power of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit today. Should not perish, but have eternal life. We have eternal life now in believing in Jesus Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. Now. Now, I wonder if some of you are surprised by that because of the way Christians around you act and live. I have to wonder, do we live like we have eternal life now, that we've been given life in this name of the Son of God who was sent, who was given to us as a gift by our loving Heavenly Father who wants so much for us, not just to take away, but to give life. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have life to the full, life abundant, That's not tied to circumstance. But again, that life is only found in him. It's only found in Jesus. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And that's why people don't... That's why people love the darkness rather than the light. Because Jesus doesn't condemn, but he does expose. He does come into the room and flip on the lights and find you doing something in the corner that you shouldn't have been doing in the first place. Every single one of us. That's a kindness of God. It really is. For God so loved the world that he didn't stay away. For God so loved the world that he refused to give people a way out. But 
there is the truth. When it says this is the judgment, it's like this is the state of the, state of the matter, guys. The tr- light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to light lest his work should be exposed. But for those with eternal life, this is verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now let's get something clear. This is not saying, well, if you just do enough true stuff, then you can come to the light. Now this is a, what John is doing here in chapter 3 of John. He's setting us on a path to understand what it means to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's setting us on a path to understand what it means to be a believer, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we have to get at the beginning that God loves, that all that he has done is out of love. And then in order to receive his love, we have to, in order to fully appropriate his love, we have to believe that he has loved. We have to believe that he has sent his son. We have to be born again. It's in this context of John chapter 3 that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Something we can't manufacture ourselves. So when it says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light. It's not saying how someone gets to the light. It's saying that those who are born again, those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, they want to come to the light. They want to show what God has done in their lives. They want to display God's glory. They want to tell of God's love. Do you? If you're saved, have those things waxed old in your life? Or have, you consi- or have we considered so great a salvation as this? Why do we want it to do? Why do we want to come to the light when we do what is true, so that it may be clearly seen that His works have been carried out in God? Basically, this is saying somebody coming to the light and saying, "I can't make this up. Do you want to see what God did? Do you want to see what God's been doing in my life?" And I'll be the first to say, that is not my normal week. It's not. This whole week, I have wrestled with this passage, thinking that if it's so great, if it's such great news, why don't I start with what God's been doing in my life during the week. But God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. You know what that means? That means I gotta pick this book up again. That means I've got to read the words again for myself. That means I've got to hear my father's voice. 
again and again and again. Because we got to be reminded of who we are. And more importantly, we got to be reminded of who God is and what he's done for us. We got to be reminded that he wants life for us. We got to be reminded that he gave his son that we'd have life. And we got to understand that he loved in such a way that he would send the son he greatly loves to the cross. You know, back in Genesis, there's a story of where Abraham is told by God to go sacrifice his son. Abraham does it. Abraham goes up the mountain. He sets up, even he has his son carry the wood. And his son asks, Dad, I see the wood, I see the fire. Where's the animal? And you know what Abraham says? He says, God will provide for himself an offering. And Abraham didn't know it then because then he gets Isaac up on the altar. He raises the knife and then God tells him from heaven, the angel of the Lord came to him and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, yeah, here I am. He said, don't lay a hand on your son. Now the offering for atonement is a lamb. Abraham saw a ram in the thicket that God had provided. And actually that mountain was called on the Lord, on the on the mount God will provide. Yet future. Here it is. Here it is. For God so loved the world that he did not spare his only begotten son. Why? Because he loves. His love is a love worth believing. And this love can break in. You see, at the beginning of this message, I gave the, the first verse from Frederick Lehman's hymn, Love of God. I don't know if you're familiar with this, the last verse in this song, the third verse, but Frederick didn't write it. He didn't write the words of the third verse. They were actually written a long time before Frederick heard about them. They were written in a room in an insane asylum. Scratched on the wall where the previous occupant had by the providence and grace of God had a moment of sanity, a moment of reality, and was overwhelmed by the love of God. And that person wrote what Frederick put in his hymn. He said, Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. This is a love that surpasses any that we can give. This is a love that surpasses our wildest dreams. The love of God is a, is 
in sending his son is love worth believing. Believe it then. It's costly. It has greater focus than condemnation. And it creates eternal transformation. Let's give thanks and let's pray.